it. Welcome to Strata Stories. My name is Thomas Schreiber, and I'm the Director of Marketing here at Strata. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. On today's episode, Paul Singh, the CEO of Strata, talks with Zain Syed, a pharmacist who has worked in a variety of different settings, including infusion, clinic, inpatient, and outpatient. Zane is also the founder of Digital Thoughts, a media company that bridges the gap between healthcare and technology through Zane's newsletter and podcast. Paul and Zane talk through artificial intelligence and machine learning in healthcare, coupons in healthcare, including building the honey for healthcare, and how to apply consumer marketing tactics to healthcare. If you'd like to learn more about Strata, head over to stratapt.com or email us at hello at stratapt.com. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. On LinkedIn, you posted something about how um, there's about AI and machine learning and how more practitioners or clinic owners or something like that should be using it. And I think the example you gave was things like uh, timing notifications to maybe some activity in their life or whatever. And I thought that was really fascinating. And I have a couple thoughts and questions on it, but I'm curious, was there any like interesting response from your audience on that? Do you recall? Yeah, so there was a couple I did. So there was one, I did a couple of them in AI and ML. One was like scheduling, like, hey, this is where it can really help. Um, yeah, you don't need a full-blown AI ML model to do this. It could just be like an algorithm. But, you know, that's one person. The other one was checking up on patients when they're starting on a new medication, right? Just making sure that, hey, are you doing okay? And then if they're not, then we can set up an appointment. The biggest thing with the second one was that people were worried about, okay, what if we can't have AI ML make a clinical decision, right? And that wasn't the whole point of it. My point, I mean, obviously I can't put all of that in there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's nuanced, I get it. Yeah, the, the whole point of it is, hey, this person started this medication and you're just, you just have a bank of questions that we would ask on any phone call, but you're just having an algorithm just ask that and they can just do a yes, no prompt um, just to make it easy on the user, right? And then from there, you can you can have a scheduling system in there. If they say, no, I'm experiencing nausea, vomiting, then they can schedule us so they can schedule a call. So now you're not playing phone tag again, helping you out and helping them out. They have the security that, Hey, somebody's checking up on me and somebody's going to call me today. And then you in the clinic knows, okay, I'm not going to get a random call in the middle of the day when I have a super busy clinic and, you know, I don't have to keep checking my voicemail to make sure that this, so that was the whole point of it. It got some interesting overall. My people are pretty nice to me. And I think no one really, I'm not big enough to for people to quote unquote the haters to show up. But for the most part, I think people find that interesting. I think that's the thing that I try to push a lot is yes, all this technology is great, but how can we use it for us? Like in a holistic manner, right? Like people are trying to jam AI ML into everything. Okay. Let's jam it into something that'll make sense, right? Like let me help guide you in a way where it'll, it'll make sense. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. First off, I love that you said that, uh, you know, you may not, you said something along the lines of, you don't necessarily need AI and ML for all this stuff. You know, it might be part of it. Yeah, I forget exactly how you said it just a few minutes ago. I, I'm, but I'm glad you said it because I think that, you know, so I'm, you know, I wear two hats on a daily basis. One is, you know, here at Strata. And then the other is I do a lot of angel investing. In angel investing, you know, like investing in tech startups and stuff like that. And uh, the thing about AI and ML that lately, like I just got a pitch for the first time in my life. I don't know if this means we're at peak AI now, but I got a pitch a couple days ago and under the, you know, the little bullet points to tease you to open the pitch deck, 
it says, we have secured the .ai domain extension for our company. <laughs> you know, as if, you know, that domain name, uh, having AI in the domain name was going to be a key differentiator for, you know, from an investor standpoint, it was like, oh my goodness, is this what we're at now? But here's the thing, like, I buy my contact lenses from 1-800-CONTACTS, right? And I'm not advertising for them or anything like that, but I'm a bulk purchaser. So I purchase once a year, you know, my full prescription for the year, and then I go to my optometrist, you know, the, the normal thing. But they've noticed the pattern. Well, I've been buying from them for a couple of years. And what's fascinating is they will text me, like I'm just a nerd about, you know, marketing tactics. And what I'll do is I sign up for everybody's newsletters. I read it. I sign up for their text messages. And then I sit there and I try to figure out what's the funnel, what's the flow. And the point is, they have noticed that I order my contacts every April. They know that my prescription is usually dated right around my birthday in early March. And now all the text messages have lined up and all the email alerts have lined up with those two dates. So in other words, they don't bother me all year because they know I've already purchased for the year. And then in February of every year, I start to get an increase. So here's my point. Like, they're not using AI or ML or anything like that. And, and Amazon does this. Everybody does this. I think the reality is, is it's not so much the technology. Like when I read that post, I love where you're going with it. And I'm glad, you know, you also said like, it's hard to stick all the nuance in a single social media post, right? But I think that it's so fascinating to me that, you know, clinicians and practice owners, I don't know what the right term is. I don't want to offend anybody, but there are some basic marketing tactics that, you know, we all are subjected to and notice in our consumer lives. And gosh, it'd be interesting, like, for example, with me, and I use Strava, the Strava app to, you know, to, to log my runs and stuff like that. Well, maybe alerts get tied to that, you know, like if my pace, because like, for example, my profile is public on Strava. And, and if it was, if other people could potentially read that data and then time notices like, oh, look, he slowed down a lot. Maybe he needs to like go see somebody, but you know, I'm making this up. But here's where I'm really going with this, because I'm curious what your thoughts on this are. So there was a, a company called Honey. I don't know if you're familiar with this company. Uh, it's not a healthcare company, but Honey. So for anybody not, that doesn't know what that is, Honey essentially is a browser plugin that, you know, when you're shopping on the internet for something, let's say you're on the North Face website or whatever, when you're in the checkout flow, if you press the little Get Honey button, it will test multiple coupons to try to find you the cheapest deal before you check out. Now, hear me out on this for a second. Where I'm going with this is, PayPal, for better or for worse, paid $4 billion for that. In other words, Honey, a company that was really good at trying to figure out how to give consumers what they want, eventually created $4 billion of value for themselves and for investors. And why I'm bringing this up is because the other side of what your post is got me my investor brain thinking. And it's like, what is the Honey of this? Because, you know, I think, for example, people like me, and I think I'm in my early 40s, I think all of us sort of whatever generation we are, like my mom probably doesn't have, you know, enough public signals available for this sort of automated alerting or, or tailored personalization or whatever. But this next generation of people like me absolutely do. And we did this in the investing world for a long time. So for a long time, like I've back 10, 15 years ago, I used to do a lot of public speaking on venture capital. And one of the biggest parts of my talk was always this idea that we use social signals to determine who to be investing in, not arbitrary, personal, hey, I think this is a good industry or not. So anyway, that was a long ramble in there, but I think it's more of a statement and then I'm curious how you respond. But like, I think there's gonna be a, a get honey for healthcare. And the question I think is gonna be, 
Does it get spearheaded by some doctor or practice owner that starts testing out personalization of alerts for their local practice? Does it start there and then become a business? Or does it start all the way on the other end of the spectrum where some totally random tech-enabled browser-type company comes in and says, let's create so much value and give something away for free in order to get consumers to give us these signals and then maybe put the ad out there for the local. So I'm making this up, but I'm curious how you think about that. Will, do you agree with that statement or do you, I'm putting you on the spot. How do you feel about that? Yeah, no, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking of like, what could be the honey of healthcare? To answer your question, I think, yes, eventually there will be something like that. I think as price transparency is being pushed more and more, we could theoretically have a honey, right? Where you Google, hopefully we get to price transparency and we can see like everyone's, you know, how much they charge for X, Y, and Z. You can be like, you can be on a hospital website or whatever website or one of these websites where they're aggregating all of these things. Like you're looking for a new replacement surgery, right? You type it in there. Maybe maybe there's a hospital that's, I mean, people are going to poo-poo this when I say this because you know, consumerism and healthcare can't be the same thing. But reality check, healthcare is consumerism. I'm sorry. When there's money being transferred, one person is the consumer. The other person is the provider, right? I mean, it is what it is. So, you know, like maybe a hospital has a has a special going on like, hey, you know, we are doing this procedure or this thing for this month, you know, because they're trying to fill up their ORs, their MRI machines, all these things, right? So even if they're charging a little less for it, it's still money in their pocket, right? That, that, that thing isn't staying still. I do see that happening in the future of healthcare, personally. And I think it's an interesting thought. And I do think that people will eventually capitalize on it. Right now, we're not there yet. We're not mature enough yet in the ecosystem where price transparency isn't, I mean, you know this more than I do, but price transparency is getting there. Will it ever get there? Who knows? But if it starts moving in that direction, I do think things like Honey would be really interesting. And also, it would be really helpful, right? So you're not like, you don't have to go through every website or whatever, right? That's the reason why Honey worked was you can go on your favorite website and then it would tell you like, hey, there's this product on this other website. It's just a little cheaper. Why don't you go there? Oh, okay, cool. That works. You know, why can't we have that in healthcare? I think we can 100% have something like that in healthcare. Yeah. Pull me out of this if there's other things that you want to riff on for a minute here. But I just find this so fascinating because like, you know, look, I've never been a practitioner. I've never been a, I don't like blood. I don't like going to the doctor, right? I'm like the last guy. That's the irony, by the way, of us talking about this two brown guys talking about healthcare, like, you know, and only one of us has a big degree and that's you. <laughs> like I, my mom still thinks I need to get a real job somewhere. But the thing I just find really fascinating here is, is that when I look back at my angel investment portfolio, I think people have this idea that like Shark Tank, I think has taught people the wrong thing. I think Shark Tank kind of makes, it perpetuates this myth that somebody's working in their garage and toiling and then they find some like secret and it magically becomes this massive company. And my experience has been completely the opposite. Some of the largest companies I've ever invested. So, so my thing is I'd like to be like one of the first checks in. I might write a 50 or 150K check and be the first investor in some very, very early stage. My experience has been that more often than not, big companies like, or big, highly impactful companies like what we're potentially talking about here when we talk about the honey for healthcare, it almost always originates from a person scratching their own itch. Meaning, you know, like when you think about Twilio, the very large sort of, um, today, every push notification that you get on your phone probably comes through Twilio. Most of the emails you get come from SendGrid, which is owned by Twilio. Anyway, like if you really think back to the history of that, it's it was developer led. Somebody started tinkering with a, you know, with Jeff Lawson and the and the guys over there started tinkering on the side with like, 
hey, why is it so hard to send messages? What is this infrastructure layer of telecom that's existed? And they just tinkered. You know, a little test became something big. And I have a feeling that's what's going to happen here. I think the honey, the honey for healthcare or something like that is going to be some tech-enabled practitioner somewhere, kind of like you, that kind of knows that there's something there. Like, for example, I'm an Apple Watch user, and whether you love it or hate it, the fact is Apple Watches are on millions of wrists now all over the world. They're constantly collecting uh, data. There is an API to Apple's health kit. And now the, like somebody like me on the outside can see the data but doesn't know what to do with it. But it's going to be, in this case, for example, somebody in the clinical world or somebody in the medical world that says, how much value or what value do I need to give somebody to give them or to make them click the connect Apple to this button? I know I'm rambling here a little bit, but I, I'm, I guess what I'm just saying is, is because our audiences, your audience and mine are you know, all in the medical field. I think like this is fundamentally why I find your viewpoints really fascinating is because like whoever on the medical side, you know, essentially bridges the gap to technology, like whoever does that first is going to win and win in the biggest sense. I mean, the numbers are massive. You know this better than me, but it's like if a coupon website is worth $4 billion in market value, a healthcare related equivalent is going to be worth way more, way, way, way more. Yeah. I mean, that's four point something, $4 trillion in the last report. Uh, being spent in healthcare. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a lot of things that I think a lot of people hold themselves back because, you know, like you were talking about marketing campaigns and stuff, right? I am a marketing nerd too, in the sense that I'm not good at it, but I, I love like looking at how companies get acquired customers. How are they so good at it? Like n me even knowing what they're doing and it's working. I'm like, that to me is like great marketing, right? Like I understand what they're trying to do and it's still working on me. And I try to like break that down and try to figure out what they're doing. And like one of those things that really, I think healthcare could, is one of those like tech enabled things, right? Is like drip campaigns, right? And drip campaigns in the sense of like, if people don't know, drip campaign is you leave something in your cart or whatever, they'll say, hey, we have another coupon or they'll, or do you sign up and every couple of days, they don't bombard you all at once. They'll just come on every couple of days, every week or so. They'll say, hey, there's this feature or have you looked at this? Or, hey, we've missed you. You want to come back? Like those kind of things, right? Like, I think those would be perfect for healthcare as well in terms of, you start a new medication and in the beginning, you're just told, hey, this is how you take it. This is the medication. This is why you're getting it. A couple of days later, before you pick up your medication, it says, hey, this is how you take your medication. Now you've picked up your medication and be like, then you can get another message. Be like, hey, did you pick up your medication? Yes or no. Then, you know, and then after that, a week later, be like, hey, are you experiencing this side effect? Yes or no. You know, and then it just can keep going on and on and on and on. But like what happens in healthcare right now is we tell them all the information all at once, right away, 50% of it is boom, gone out of their head. We don't have time to follow up with them. We don't find out they don't pick up their medication until they end up in the ER. Now the healthcare, they've just spent four or $5,000 going to the ER, going to completely preventable thing. Like those are things like, yeah, drip campaign is a marketing term, but we can call it something else, right? In healthcare to make people, make it more palatable, I guess, for <laughs> the, the people in healthcare. But there's so many things that we can learn from tech. And that's what I try to like bring is there's so many things that are working in tech in your day-to-day -day consumer life that can easily work in healthcare. It's just that people are so against the word consumer in healthcare, which I understand like being a healthcare practitioner, yes. But I do think if we looked at patients or at doctors, you know, clinicians as the consumer, as the end use instead of the end user, I think that the products would end up getting better because the term consumer and the term end user are two very different connotations.
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, and again, maybe I'm just a weird blood-sucking capitalist tech nerd. I don't know. But, you know, I think the the thing I think about is, is that like, by the way, what is the right term to use? Because I'm always afraid of offending people. It's like, do I, what's the industry term? Do I call everybody like clinicians, healthcare professionals? Like, you know, because when you think about it, it's like there's the doctor, the people that support the doctor, the people that check in patients. Is there a term I'm supposed to use, by the way, that <laughs> doesn't piss anybody off? I primarily use clinicians. Some people don't like that, but I, I use it. You're never going to make everyone happy. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I think the interesting part to me is that like back to this point of like, I think innovation in the healthcare space is going to come from within healthcare. It's not going to come from like some tech people coming in from the outside. Like you, another thing you talk a lot about in the past is, is, you know, the trust and how to build trust and credibility in healthcare and stuff like that. And, and we can reference those like posts in the, in the show notes, but the point is, though, is that like the thing that I, I think is the most valuable thing that clinicians you that have that I don't or anybody else doesn't is the direct relationship with the patient. And, you know, the big, I think, macro question is, is like, you know, just pulling on this thread of honey for healthcare for a minute. It's like whoever is closest to the patient has the highest chance of potentially providing enough value to that patient to get them to give you their data. And whoever gets figures that out first will then unlock the ability to do a lot of interesting things. So for example, first of all, this is already happening around us. You know, to your point about we're all consumers and our patients are consumers. Like we use Facebook for free because we are the product, right? And so like Facebook provides us a fun place to waste time and all that. But what they get in return is social signals. What do we pay attention to? And then they make a ton of money um, displaying things that we'll click on. This is what Google does too, right? Like this happens all around us already. And so here, what I'm trying to like poorly articulate is that when I walk into my doctor's office as a patient, the real macro question, I'm curious if somebody in the audience has some thoughts on this at some point, but like, I'm curious, like what value would they have to give me for me to maybe click the connect with Apple or that's the thing, right? Like I shouldn't have to remember, let's just use, I'm going to, here's a bad example. At 42 years old, I really just only go to the doctor unless something hurts or once a year for my annual, right? But, you know, if my general practitioner's office, which is a large health system here now in, in Virginia, Inova Health, it's like they've got my chart, which is like that thing they use to like, it's such a crappy app, but like it's how you pay and, you know, schedule all that. But why isn't that thing actually maybe when I log into it to pay my bill, asking me to connect to Apple Health, uh, my Apple Health Kit account and starting to track those signals? Maybe they are, but if they are, they're not doing a great job. But I guess my point is that the irony of all this to me is, is that, you know, as I'm getting to know you, you're trying to show clinicians that they should like kind of embrace tech. And I'm coming at it from the other side and I'm like, God, this is like huge because nobody from the outside has that direct relationship with the patient. Even I with Strike or Strata, I don't have a direct relationship with the patient. They use our software, but it's the clinician they're talking to. So anyway, I guess what I'm just saying is healthcare professionals here have all the power and it's like you're trying to convince them that they do, <laughs> but they already have it. And the big question everybody should be thinking about is this idea of like, when that patient walks in the door, you're already giving them enough value in terms of like making them feel better or whatever. But it's like, what's that one next question that might get them to connect their, uh, their accounts with you or something? I don't know. Like I, I'm making this up, right? But again, there's a lot of consumer equivalents here. And I just, I'm curious to see where it goes, but. What you said is exactly true, right? So when you're a provider, a clinician, whatever, and you tell your patient, hey, download this app, it's going to help us do this, you know, whatever, right? 
I mean, the numbers are probably not great, but they're probably better than just them trying to figure out that app on their own and showing the provider like, hey, I tried this out, right? Because we are the ones for better or for worse, it's just the landscape we live in right now, are dictating what the patient is using, getting all that stuff, right? Even when they buy over-the-counter medications, we are usually the ones telling them, hey, buy this, right? Either you talk to your pharmacist at the counter or the doctor says, hey, you know, go do this, right? Like we are driving the consumerism in healthcare. I mean, we can talk about insurance companies, all that stuff, but I'm just going to stick to the clinicians to kind of drive my point home. You know, in one recent phenomenon that's really happened in the consumer market is like the influencer part. Like I hate the word influencer, but like, you know, you put a face to a product, right? Of, you know, usually faceless products back in the day were fine, right? Like they're selling like those legacy companies, Coke, Pepsi, all these things that work. But now what's happening is like, you know, for people that don't know, like in the drink market, I'm just using that, like Prime is a great example. They picked two massive influencers in two different countries. And now that's like challenging, like Gatorade, all these things. But that was not because their product is any better. It's just that they got the right people pushing the product to people, right? Whether you trust them or not, that's outside of the question, but I'm saying it works, right? So why can't you do the same thing with healthcare where you have this product, you're targeting, if I was creating a company, I would be targeting providers specifically, right? And you would have to almost lose some money in the beginning because you can't, I'll be honest with you, no one wants to pay more than they already are, right? But if you can get a bunch of providers that are trustworthy, and I'm not saying like you make backdoor dealings or whatever, you make a good product, make them like your product, and then they start pushing it to their patients, then that's how it works, right? It's you can do it both ways. You can do the consumer side where you're going to the patient, DT, like direct to the consumer, which is the, the actual patient themselves. But it's hard for the patient to convince the provider to use something, right? Because then what am I going to do from a provider standpoint? I have now 30 patients coming to me and with five different apps, it's really hard for me to handle all of that. Like it's honestly, someone like me who likes technology would probably say no, right? But if I have one app that I can push to those 30 patients and it's helpful to me and it's helpful to them, yeah, I'm on board with that because in the end, if you're showing me tangible value, this is going to save you time. This is going to save you and also make you money. And then the other thing that I don't think tech realizes, maybe business people like our, like the business people in the hospitals and clinics want this, but me as a clinician, I don't want to necessarily see more people. Seeing people is not the problem. We are, we are in a day. There's a backlog of people. What I want to do is see the people that I already see better, right? Where even if I can only spend seven minutes with them, Maybe that seven minute interaction is way more targeted because now I have labs prior to where you came. Now I have data prior to where you came. Now we can just focus on that. I'm not trying to get it out of you. I already have it. And now with that seven minute interaction, it should be longer. We're not arguing that point, but let's say it's, it's days of the seven. Now that seven minute interaction is way, way, way more powerful than anything else. So those are the kind of things that go into my head. And some people call me crazy for that, but I think that it's just the nature of the beast. Just because you're in healthcare, you're we don't turn into a different being, right? We're still human beings with the same emotions, same wants and needs. Like, I don't understand why that kind of things don't come in healthcare. I mean, I understand, I, I kind of know why, but whoever, I think eventually there's gonna be a company that's gonna go down that road and they're gonna become a very big company. But it's just like, obviously the product has to come first. You have to make a good product, but the company that is willing to put money behind it, they're gonna lose money in the beginning. But people that have that long, you know, long time horizon mindset, like, hey, this is okay right now because we see the future coming, they're going to succeed. See, that's interesting. So your core premise there, I think, is that entrepreneurs in this space should focus on the providers. That's kind of what you're saying, right? If you're creating an application where the patient and the provider are going to be interacting with it, I would focus on the provider because the provider is the one that's going to make or break your application. 
they're going to be the ones that are going to either push it or they're going to be the ones that say, okay, great, you have this, but I'm just going to toss it to the side, right? The patient can come all they want, but it's up to us to use that data. It's up to us to incorporate that into our practice. If we're not doing it, you don't have a business. I think that's the hard thing about healthcare is you have multiple stakeholders, right? There's three main stakeholders in healthcare, insurance, provider, the, the clinician, provider, and then the patient, right? So if you have in that in that triangle, if the provider and the patient are your people, I would lean towards the the provider. That's interesting because like I, and by the way, I don't, you know, we're just riffing on this, right? I think it's fascinating because to me, when I hear that, you know, as an entrepreneur, I don't think you're wrong. I just think that when you think about starting a new business, whether it's, you know, what we're talking about or something else, one of the trickiest parts is, is that I think clinicians are hard to convince. You know, I think they're busy, they're jaded with all the false promises of technology in the past couple of years. Like, it's just, it's hard to break into it. I come at it from the other end and I, I like the best way I can kind of explain my thought is to use an example. I'm based in Northern Virginia. That's home for me. And one of the bigger companies that emerged from here a couple of years ago was called Living Social. You know, they're not around anymore, but way back when they were that company or one of those big companies that, you know, basically provided consumers a way to buy, you know, coupons to events. So it'd be like, hey, uh, pay Living Social X and you're going to get 50% off of ice cream at, I don't know, whatever that place is around the corner. But here's the interesting part. Aaron Battalion, I've met him a couple times. He was the founder. Uh, we've traveled together actually in the past as well. But one of the sort of legends of Living Social was that he had to make this choice at the beginning. Does he go after small business owners and say, hey, can I sell discounted stuff to your place? Or does he go the other way and go to the consumers? Like it's a, What you're talking about is fundamentally a two-sided marketplace. And with any two-sided marketplace, you have to find a wedge like to get the flywheel going. Nobody disagrees that two-sided marketplaces are extremely valuable once you get to critical mass. Question is how you get there. And one of the legendary stories of Living Social is they just, as I recall anyways, and I might, historians might crucify me on this, but you know, the legend is that Aaron sort of picked an ice cream shop here in Northern Virginia and just without their permission, sold a bunch of coupons and sent a bunch of people to them to go get it. So, you know, long story short, he just sent a lot of customers there and then essentially went, walked in the store the next day and said, hey, you know that influx you had yesterday? Now you got to pay for it <laughs> to the small business owner. And so, you know, it's really like, you know, he decided to kickstart the flywheel by getting the audience first and then going after the small business owner. In this case, I guess what I'm saying is that you're talking about a two-sided marketplace. You know, you have providers or clinicians on one side and you have patients on the other and the philosophical question really is, is how do you kickstart that flywheel? You know, another big story that we all kind of probably have experience with indirectly is Amazon. You know, Amazon didn't start out as like today, if you think about it, Amazon is sort of like, it's like the world's largest Walmart, if you will, right? Like if you walk into your local Walmart, you can only buy whatever's in that 30,000 square foot store, you know, and for better or for worse, that's what it is. Amazon on the other side is essentially a unwalled, biggest Walmart you've ever seen, except you can't walk into it because you can literally buy anything from it. But it started out as books. And if you think about it, really, and you read back, you know, there's public letters from Jeff Bezos that he's published over the years and a lot of data over the years. Thing is, the real power of Amazon is really like they owned the audience first, the buyers first, and then added more and more SKUs over time. Rather than go and say to the supplier, hey, if you give me a thousand of these units at a cheaper price, I can move them. It really changed the conversation. Like, yeah. So anyway, I know I'm kind of like rambling here a little bit, but 
I guess all I'm just saying is, is that I agree with your core message. I just think that coming at it from the entrepreneurial side, it's kind of like whichever one of the clinicians or whatever we're going to call them, whichever one of these clinicians realizes that the first milestone that has to be unlocked is figuring out how to get a patient to give you more access to their data so that you can figure out what to do with it next. And I don't know how else to articulate it any better than that. I think you brought up a couple of amazing points there. Um, so the buyer, right? Who the buyer is. I think in healthcare, that's that changes constantly. It's like a the buyer is a hot potato kind of going all the back and forth, right? I think that's what makes it really hard to create a business in healthcare. Like sometimes your buyer is the patient. Sometimes your buyer is the clinician. Sometimes your buyer is the insurance company. All three of them have competing interests at heart, right? I won't go into all of them. Maybe we can talk about it a little later, but all of them are competing in an interest. Like, so if we go back to that initial premise of the consumer application, you know, if you're creating an application where it's feeding data to the clinician, generally speaking, it's very hard for me to make consumers like the actual patients or regular people pay for things. We live in this world where free, we live in a freemium SaaS model, whatever. People expect a lot of things for free right now. And I think that it's really hard for the layperson to be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to pay 15, 10, whatever dollars a month for this. But it's a little bit more palatable for like bigger corporations, like bigger clinics, whatever. It's hard to get a one person visit. Now, I know I'm going to have like those people like, oh, have you tried selling to a doctor? Yes. I mean, it's hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. But like you said, it's really hard to break into health tech. It's really hard. Like all these in the recent in the recent months, we've been seeing massive unicorns falling like Babylon. I mean, that's a big one right there. But and this might be really naive of me. If you do create a product that you that excites people, that excites the clinician, you will make headway because then they turn into that the customer, right? In that ice cream shop, right? Like those customers flooding in that day is now all your physicians going to management, and be like, hey, I saw this app. I talked to them. This is amazing. Now you now that now that higher up C suite person now has like 14, 15, 60 people in the hospital telling them this. Now they have to open up and see, okay, what is going on? What are they talking about? Right. And you have to make the process also really easy. If there's just, and this is kind of a cop-out answer, but it's the truth. Healthcare is a really, really hard business. It's really hard to make point solutions because things don't, there's not great APIs out there. There's not amazing stuff out there that can link back and forth. But I think the easier thing is linking a application with a, you know, going to that consumer side where it's like the, and I shouldn't say easier, but the physician with, physician patient relationship the physician is the one whether you like it or not that is going to be pushing your application or killing it so that's why i think a lot of people forget about that person and then in terms of a two-person marketplace you know it's always supply and demand right like what do you go after first do you go after supply first or do you go after the demand first because if you have a lot of demand but no supply your marketplace dies if you have a lot of supply and minimal demand then people might leave either way you need to find a str strike a good balance and it depends like, you know what I mean? Like, so, but I don't know, sometimes it's a little safer to have a little bit more supply and a little less demand because then you can start marketing towards the demand size and start creating the demand part. But sometimes getting suppliers is really hard because they're the ones that, that are putting everything at the risk, right? So if you can get the high risk people that are putting a lot of risk into your platform and get them to buy in, I think there's a lot of marketing channels out there that you can just throw money at and get the demand side in. Yeah. I mean, I, I generally agree. I think the only comment I would add there is, is that there's no good path here. What we're really talking about is, is what's less worse? You know, what's the least worst path into this? The thing that I just, again, maybe as an outsider in the industry, I think the thing that I just find so fascinating is that 
if you think about the consumer world, um, some of the biggest companies that have come out of the last 20 years, things like LinkedIn, GitHub, Microsoft, PayPal, eBay, right? One of the common threads of all those companies is that they're all competing for a customer, a consumer, who on an annual basis might be worth, what, at most, I don't know, like 20 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, you know? Like, it doesn't matter, like, I should probably Google this before I talk to you about it, but you know, when you think about like the public earnings reports from Facebook and, and Google and all this stuff, one of the things they sort of boil down typically is, is what the revenue per user really works out to be. And I'm making this up, but like an average person on Facebook is probably worth $4 a month to Facebook, right? Because they can sell enough ads against that person to make it worth that. So with those numbers, the industry has created these massive multi-billion dollar companies, right? And here's the crazy nerdy part now for me as the new guy in healthcare, like oh, less than two years in it, I guess. But it's like, you know, you published something in July where you talked about CMS data shows that, I forget exactly how you said it, but you talked about CMS data showing that healthcare spending was 18% of GDP and you boiled it down to say that the annual value per patient is about $13,000 of dollars that are flowing around. So that's the part that's like crazy to me is it like we're all talking about vying for these customers and where they're going to spend? Like, I don't know how to say this other than to say, like, the craziest part about getting to know you is the fact that you have to convince healthcare people that tech is important. Because, like, what's at stake here is not only better outcomes for people, but like hundreds of billions of dollars. I think, you know, we're using like this honey for healthcare analogy. I think that the fact is, is that like whoever nails this is going to become like, the size of Apple as a technology company inside of healthcare. Probably going to offend some people. Apple has more cash on hand than like most of the EU combined. <laughs> like, yeah, so I think it's just really fascinating to me. But anyway, I, I know I'm riffing on this a little too long, but any other like interesting posts uh, in your world that, you know, that you were like, oh, I didn't expect that one to blow up that, you know, people kind of like either loved or hated. Again, I'm very lucky that I don't get a lot of hate. I, it's probably because I'm not popular enough. <laughs> the hate will come. Don't worry. <laughs> That's when I know I've made it. <laughs> I think the AI ML conversation is really interesting. And I think that where the break in AI and ML comes, like, like the definition of AI ML is an interesting one for me because, you know, is an algorithm like a yes, no Boolean algorithm an AI ML? Is that AI ML? Is AI ML more so like in the black box where it's making decisions, you know, as a decision tree and AI and ML thing. I mean, one thing that came from Babylon was like, you know, they were just using spreadsheets and calling that AI ML. I don't think that's AI ML if, if the reports are true, but I think that's one thing that's interesting. Um, and the other thing that, that really was interesting for me to look into was how your income affects your healthcare. Um, and I think this is a topic that is really uncomfortable for people to talk about. Because I think that we live under the assumption that, hey, we are the number one nation in the world. And, you know, if you try hard, you can make it. And what I found was that's not how it works. Because the number one thing that leads to higher income that we can all universally agree to is education, right? So Georgetown University did the study looking at education and poverty. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but they found that if you are a top scoring child in a lower income household compared to a low scoring child in a higher income household, that low scoring child has a higher 
likelihood of getting to college and earning a higher wage than the smart kid, right? You know, the smart. So the smart person from a low income family is less likely to succeed than a, I'm going to use dumb. I'm not meaning that in a derogatory word, but you know, a person that is not as high, it does not score as high as that low income kid. And that to me is a huge, it was like an eye opening. I mean, I kind of knew it, right? Because I, I always say that one of the things I say is, the exception should not be what we are celebrating. We should be celebrating the rule. So if we are celebrating people that are 1% of person that gets out, that means the system is failing, right? Like if I if like think from a healthcare perspective, if we are celebrating 1% of surgeries succeeding and 99% of them, the patient's dying, people would look at us as like, what the hell is wrong with you guys, right? But we do that on a day-to-day basis in our life, right? We are celebrating all these exceptional people, which we should, 100% we should, but we also forget about all the people that are trying. It's, so that's, that was something that really, and that kind of what drove some interesting conversations uh, with people. Because like I said, I don't think people, not that they don't know, it's just an uncomfortable conversation to have. And those are certain things that I want to like to talk about is going into the uncomfortable thing, challenging my own opinions and my own views to see if I'm right, right? And then trying to back that up with data and be like, hey, this is the reality of life and we need to fix that. And that is all part of healthcare, right? That's yeah. It's not physically their health, but it is incorporated in the way they're able to live. I haven't seen that report, that research. I would anecdotally agree that that's probably right. I mean, historically, the lowest income bands are always the most disadvantaged. You know, like another way to look at this is is that if you work in some hourly sort of industries, certain industries, you can't just as easily pop out and go see the doctor, and so like. I mean, that, this is like a super complex issue that sort of involves not only the patient and the clinician, but the employer as well. It's a big, big issue for sure. I mean, I will say just as a totally interesting aside, maybe, is that like, it's so interesting that in the entrepreneurial space, you know, when we think about startups and, and that sort of thing, one of the interesting sort of threads that some of the most successful founders have is this like experience with trauma, like whether it's some a broken home or an alcoholic parent or there was some sort of trauma. Like, I don't know what it is about entrepreneurs, but when you were talking about sort of the smart, poor kid and sort of the challenges they face, like getting into like higher education and stuff like that, which I generally agree with, you know, it's interesting that on the entrepreneurial side of things, when we think about, you know, quote unquote startups, that particular set tends to be the most successful from an entrepreneurial standpoint. In fact, you know, what's fascinating, by the way, totally random. I'm going to hit you kind of like unexpected, but one of the most interesting things is, is that, you know, in the venture capital community, like these people like us that fund other people, you know, there's a big competition all the time. Nobody ever talks about it publicly, but the behind the scenes competition is always like, hey, what's your returns? What's your returns? What's your returns? Right. And, you know, publicly, everybody says they're crushing it, but privately, 99.9% of investors never see their money back. But here's the thing. The most successful venture investment firm in the world that nobody talks about is Peter Thiel's, but it's that fund where he pays kids to drop out of college. Does that ring a bell to you? Are you familiar with that? The Thiel Fellows, that's what it's called. So the Thiel Fellows, T-H-I-E-L Fellows, you guys can Google it, but like Thiel Fellows actually pays, it will give promising students 100K if they agree to drop out of school instantly. And what's fascinating is if you, and by the way, they take no equity or anything like that. It's literally a grant with no strings attached. You just... Actually, the only string is you have to drop out of school. And what's fascinating is is that the hit rate on that portfolio from a financial job creation numbers, whatever metric you want to look at it, it has outperformed 
I don't think any venture firm in the 75 years of venture capital history that we've had has ever generated as much financial return as the Teal Fellows. And it speaks to kind of like what you're talking about, which is if you're able to get to college or, you know, higher education or whatever, there's more opportunities for you, like things like the Teal Fellows and other things. Thanks for listening to another episode of Strata Stories. Strata is a single EMR platform and a revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. If you'd like to learn more about Strata, head over to stratapt.com or email us at hello at stratapt.com. <laughs>